Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. That way we can get some extra stuff that I can edit in later. We have to have a blooper reel. Hello, Internet, and welcome to Polycast, episode 407. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as usual by Canis Albinus. Only a few more episodes left to edit. Makalua. We, need, <clears throat> we needed rain, but we didn't need, you know, like the past two months of rain in 24 hours. That was great. Yeah, I saw that. I was a little bit worried for your safety. Uh, luckily it was only about six and a half inches here so it didn't flood everything as bad as the places that got 15 in 24 hours holy crap and the me and team never a dull moment if your tool is sharp enough yeah we've got a a healthy monsoon season here in vegas this year as well let's spend like a whole month like of uh on and off rain and thunderstorms like every couple days oh no he said the word monsoon now your attrition is higher oh no. no I prefer. I personally like the rain, the the thunderstorms, except when I'm trying to work outside. Oh, there's been some real good lightning uh, this past month or two here here in Vegas. Well, that means you've got plenty of nitrogen in the soil, so your grass should grow really well for a while if you have grass. <sighs> trying not to, but we just haven't been able to get rid of it yet. I would I would prefer your monsoony wear where it's every few days, not all in 24 hours. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I also saw some of the the pictures and video of of like the highways and people like climbing out of their cars to like it was a uh, some kind of uh, disaster horror movie. It was like the day after tomorrow kind of stuff going on on those highways. That movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I read the book it was based on, and I and even as. Uh, as a 13-year-old reading a book, the book is by Art Bell, by the way, if you know who that guy is. Uh, it was it was a very scary book to read, but then you realize, wait a minute, this is all theoretical and um, ideological, but then you run into this things like, oh, well, well, that's just what happens. Like, I don't know. Let's find a topic that's not so esoteric that I don't have to think so hard about. Oops, we ran into some problems. What? Uh-oh. The page won't open. That's not a good sign. Did the topic <laughs> did one of our topics get deleted? That might be the case. I guess I also have only one tab open that says, "Oops, we ran into some problem." <laughs> the requested page cannot be found. Uh Do we know which one that was? It was the, it, well, it says it at the top in the the URL. It's the one about, okay, what exactly is a civilization? I'm going to guess it's descended into a flame war of some sort. They normally just lock those threads rather than delete them. Interesting. Yep, that thread is gone. It has been nuked from orbit. Anyway, our actual first topic is Unciv, which is an open source re-implementation of the most famous civilization building game ever. Fast, small, no ads, free forever. And this is purportedly, and I haven't tested this, so I'm not sure, but it is purportedly a mobile version of, a mobile open source version of Civ 5. Um, 
But I'm seeing down here the downloads are for Windows 64, Windows 32, and Linux 64 and Windows 32, or Linux 32, which I don't think runs on phones, so... There's a, there is a button for the Google Play Store. Yeah, I was going to Right below those. Ah, okay. So apparently these people hate Apple. Well, you know. And wisely so. <laughs> I think well, Apple's store is also a little harder to get stuff published onto, I think, maybe. Like, there might be, like, fees or something like that that maybe they couldn't afford or didn't want to pay well there's fees on both i'm sure um because apple and um Google, apple and android are very uh, competitive to each other at least i don't know about microsoft store but i'm i hate it so i don't know anything about it but uh there's also no mac version which suggests they hate apple but according to the comments that it's a very beta, early beta version. Some of the stuff doesn't work very well, and uh, to be surprised, to, to be fair, that's not surprising considering it's a full remake. It's supposed to be a a uh, open source version of a triple oh, A title that was worked on for well over seven years. So I don't know what people were expecting, but it does look like it's a good it's a good start. That might also be why it's not on the Apple Store. Maybe it did not meet you know Apple's quality assurance standards because i know they also review certain apps uh before publishing them that could be i wonder what quality would be insufficient in this context or apple i think if it doesn't work they don't allow it well most okay of the time. But presumably this game works but yeah i guess if it doesn't work then or maybe they play just it don't like well scrolling through the uh the comments here like it definitely there's a lot of reports of very beta like uh behavior Slowdown, performance issues, crashes, that sort of stuff. It does list okay. it as updated four days ago, so they're still working on it. Four days oh, ago. And I'm, I'm four sure they will be working on it for a while. Four days ago for us <laughs> being the 23rd of August, 2022. Uh, you can find it on each IO, which is... Uh, I don't know how many people know what each IO is, but it's a it's a it's um, basically an indie gaming site where you can like post random things and not charge for them or you can charge whatever you want for them or it's like the it's like the steam store before um green what was it green light green light yeah back before green light was openly readily available um this is where people would post their early versions and cheap games and such like that still has a very big place it's where a lot of the game jam uh organizations have their games get posted to yeah, no, I've seen multiple streamers just do like an itch.io night. Like they just go through various demos that look interesting. And some of them are good and some of them are like, but why? And a lot of them uh, basically are because so many of them are, you know, game jam games. Um, a lot of them are kind of like not really necessarily, quote, full games. They're more like uh, uh, like demos or proof of concept kind yeah. of things for, for a bigger, you know, an idea for a bigger game. Um so they're interesting in that regard because you get to see, uh, especially for, because I, I do think there are some of them where they they release that on like itch.io and then they go and they release a full game, you know, a couple years later on Steam. So it's interesting to see like where those, I, all the ideas started sometimes in those sorts of cases and uh, how they evolved. Well, speaking of cities being revolting, 
Well, City Revolts are a thing in Civ 5, Civ 4, Civ 3. Listen, City Revolts have been happening for a while, but we're talking about Civ 6 specifically here. Uh, They are much worse than the others in terms of the consequences. Yeah, over on the Civ Reddit, uh, GoldEagle1123 is asking, should there be a five-turn minimum in captured cities before revolt is possible? Because they just quit a game as Macedonia, where the game was basically made unwinnable because they were on a harder difficulty, they rushed their neighbor, they captured their capital in two other cities. But however, the enemies sitting in the capital were permanently stuck in three-turn revolts, no matter how many times they crushed them. And each time they would go into the free city, it would spawn two full-strength current age units, you know, and his army was having no time to heal. You know, they couldn't even, and I guess they had one of those choke point type areas, they couldn't even retreat either. Basically, for them, we're in the game. As they put it, wasted some of their, you know, valuable uh, fun time. Yeah, but yeah, that's, that's, I'd, I wish they. I wish there was a way to have a look at that save and see what, well, see how things were placed, you know, to figure out where those were. The most obvious issue that he had there was that he raged, wrote, he raised the major city, and um, when you when you are capturing cities in Civ Six from an organized from an empire that is po- powerful and strong, you need to take more than one city at a time and hold them together to keep them from revolting away. Yeah, like, like literally on the same turn, like have your army get one city down to zero hit points, then get the next city down to zero hit points, then another city down to zero hit points, and then move in and take the cities, all three cities on the same turn so that they reinforce each other's loyalty. Yeah. But I think what he's saying here is that's part of the problem is that you have to do that sort of, not really micromanaging, but you you can't just walk in and take a city and then take another city a couple of turns later, which we've been able to do previously in the civs. This has to do with the whole loyalty mechanic thing that it's kind of gone a little over the top. Well, it's also a symptom of the one unit per tile, right? Because the mm. solution to this sort of issue in older Civ games, like in, in Civ 4 and, and earlier, was you would just leave a stack of units there. And the bigger the city was, the more population it had, or the more resistance there was to your occupation, the more units you would have to leave behind, you know, to maintain martial law or whatever, and... Uh, and then the trade-off to that being that that's then less units that you get to take, you know, to continue conquering with. I suppose you could have it however, you can only have the one unit inside the uh, actual city tile, but maybe if you had them parked on districts or parked within the city limits or something that would work the same way the stack used to. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, at the very least, like, leaving another military unit, like, in an encampment or a military district mm-hmm. should also count as, like, a garrison yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can understand, you know, the argument that maybe not every district should work that way, but at the very least, the city center and, a, you know, encampment district should, you know, can be considered garrisoned units and their, uh, you know, happiness or, or revolt quelling properties should be stacked in that case. It says here he went in with a huge force, save scummed in order to play perfectly, even yeah. didn't make a difference. So what this sounds like to me is he wants to play the perfect game of Civ 5 in Civ 6. I don't know. Like, it, it's really just a question of how much is, uh, like, appropriate for time at, at max for a revolt. Like, how, how by, from a design standpoint, how tight do you need to capture cities alongside each other? You know, is, is three good or is five good or something other than either of those? Uh, well, I'm I'm also curious why this user didn't just raise all of the cities. Like, and then they, if you raise them, they can't flip. So well, I there's mean, that too. But maybe they had wonders or something. 
Well, then you would probably keep the big city because that's the one that probably has the wonders. Yeah. Getting rid of the big city is probably the biggest mistake because that's the one that would provide all the support pressure. Yeah. Right. And then we also, I'm not seeing anything. It might be later on down the comments. I don't know if if the OP posted more in there, but like, I don't know, are you using, uh, um, what are they called? The governors, right? Did you move a governor into the city? Do you have policies in place that do give you loyalty bonuses for having garrisons in the city? You know, all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, is he, it on a different continent? Is there? Do you have the policy that gives you loyalty bonus on different continents? All that sort of stuff. He, <clears throat> he says that he used governors and he used garrison units. Um, okay, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that the user was because they also said that they're playing on a harder difficulty level. So I'm assuming if you're playing like at king or above, you have a, a basic understanding of, of how all this stuff works. But I, don't, I wasn't sure. Yeah, someone else in the comments, just without seeing screenshots, was pointing out that Macedonia and a heroic age should have had no problem holding the capture cities. That the problem was punched a hole in it, basically punched a hole through the, the empire to get to the capital and didn't take the support cities along the border, which would have yeah. also helped. Yeah, you got to take them in clumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, like sp- sp- the loyalty thing is specifically in the game to prevent. Uh, a sieve from just going straight for the capital, you know, beelining straight for the capital. Like that's, that is working as intended. I mean, we can argue till we're all blue in the face and the cows come home about whether or not that is a good intent, but that's working as intended. That was always uh, not ideal play. I don't know why. I don't know that that's the design thing that it accomplishes. I mean, I, th- I guess people just see that the victory condition is to hold all the capitals. So they just go for the minimum, you know, necessary requirement to win uh whether or not it's it's whether or not it is good play so i don't know i I guess but like it is harder to do that in like civ 4 uh, for example than it is to just take cities the only way (laughs) like you are exposing yourself to more problems and i also wonder how much of this is maybe this player is just carrying over possibly bad habits from civ 5 because in civ 5 because happiness penalties were global for you know number of cities and population uh you know arguably you don't want to keep um all the cities on the way you would just raise cities and go straight to the capital because you just don't have the happiness to support conquering the entire empire yeah that's true so the other games yeah you definitely have to play conquest in civ 6 differently than you played conquest in civ 5 yeah, there's more description of it. And yeah, the capital is also deep within the enemy territory. So even the capital's nowhere close enough. So even if he takes everything, all the other, all, the, all of their other cities out around it, he still doesn't have enough support because there's probably another civ on the other side who's pressuring it. If he takes all those other cities, though, they start adding pressure to the other side, though. I mean, it might take a, a while, but another option would be to just let the cities revolt and stay as free cities until you've, you know, taken, you know, all the cities that you want and then just go back and reconquer them from the, you know, barbarians or whatever. If they're flipping from loyalty pressure that fast, they will be enemy cities again very quickly. Yeah, probably. Okay, so how do we want to handle this uh, deleted topic? Do we just skip over it or... I mean, I don't know. Did anyone read it? Basically, basically, the question was, um, what is a civilization in terms of um, gameplay and how does it relate to a civilization in terms of actual history? 
and it was basically the is that it doesn't yeah the the big question was um like does the confederacy in the united states count as a civilization or does um like the Marath- maranthas or the marathas in india do they count as a civilization or should they all be part of uh the same indian civilization and I would imagine there was a lot of flame wars and then somebody started bringing up how, bringing up things like why are Brazil and Grand Colombia and the United States and Canada and Australia considered civilizations when they're not really super distinct from their predecessor cultures why is Byzantium considered its own civ when it's just a part of the Roman Empire and I can see how that would have turned into a flame war <laughs> the Marathis, as like everything is part of India. That's like putting Cherokee as part of the U.S. Yeah. I mean, you could, but I don't know that that would be more historically accurate. <laughs> well, it's like the Civ for Native American civilization or the Holy Roman Empire. It's just nonsensical. Yeah. Well, if you're going to say that, like the Marathi were part of modern India in some context, yes, that is similarly nonsensical. Uh, as far as standards for what gets included versus not, like. I there is no coherent standard if you look at the civs that make it versus civs that didn't make it like there's no there's no standard whereby that predicts what we observe uh, from Firaxis so I, I guarantee you Firaxis does not have some criteria list that they go down and when they choose who to add they just pick from people who are like in that next grouping on the list no that, that I promise you that doesn't happen I would put money on that I think uh, the... I'm pretty sure they just pick things that they think would be interesting <coughs> to represent and fun to play I think yeah. they they also pick... Oh, go ahead, Maggie. No, 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 no. I was just agreeing with him. Uh, they're probably picking based on who is popular among a player base we want to reach. That's true, too, yeah. Because Indonesia, 100 and, or like 200-some million people live in Indonesia. I would not be surprised to see a Pakistani civilization at some point or a Nigerian civilization because they both have big populations and are at least ostensibly approaching the more developed part of the world where they have that kind of money to play a video game like this um but brazil huge population australia not so much um canada not so much but the u.s definitely i mean it's american company um lots of european civs that everybody has heard of if they're from america and europe where the main player base is um yeah it seems pretty simple to figure out which ones go into a civ game it's mostly eurocentric and then flavor stuff from all over the world and where there's lots of people. Which well, is not the way it should good. be, but that's the way it they've, is. They've pretty good throwing in like stuff that we haven't seen previously in Civ Six. Yeah. Gives well, people I- some like historical context for some areas of the world uh, that were, were perhaps not represented at all previously. At least yeah. during the time frame in question. And I've also brought up, you know, many times in the past that just the game's mechanics as they are now do also limit you know, what civilizations you can potentially represent in the game. Because, you know, I've, I've been on this, this soapbox for a long time about wanting more genuinely nomadic or pastoral civilizations being represented in the game. But because the game is focused around building and developing cities and empires, like, you know, having like, you know, Great Plains Native Americans, you know, doesn't necessarily work uh, as well in that context because, you know, they didn't build really big permanent settlements uh although they do you know manage to fit you know civilizations like the the huns and the uh, mongolians and stuff like that in there that were also largely nomadic but they also did have large permanent you know settlements as well so it's easier to find cities that represent them 
we don't know to the, what extent the North American uh, tribes had permanent settlements prior to getting diseased by like smallpox at enormous scale. We know yeah. that some well, did. Yeah, we know some did. Uh, like, so we don't we don't know to what extent uh, like the biggest city that like particular Great Plains tribe had like offhand. We don't. To my knowledge, we don't. I haven't seen anything that shows that. Right. But then, you know, again, because the game is so focused around those cities, if we don't, you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. If we don't know, how do we, you know, represent like what do we pick as names? Yeah, the game for doesn't those care cities, either. So. Like they just throw someone in. So like like you could just give them uh, whatever and just have them build cities like everyone else, which is what already is being done. Uh, even yeah. the, amongst the civilizations included, it's not like they were run remotely similarly to each other across the board or something or you know they had remotely similar city sizes culture structures uh, empire governance all that very drastically but in the game you can pick whatever you want for policy like from the beginning to the end yeah if they were trying to be his historically representative they might limit you from using some governments if you're playing rome or something like that yeah but the scope of the game is six thousand years where yeah. you're basically picking how that nation is developing so even if they were historically nomadic well you can choose to not be rejoice <laughs> says you can choose to take uh, historically uh, not very aggressive civilization and conquer the world with it and have gandhi overrunning everybody with tanks like if you're doing that kind of stuff then i don't know <laughs> i think a big part of it too is there's the question of which comes first First, the decision on which civilization to include or what mechanic or ability they want to have in the game and then finding a civilization that matches that best. And I'm sure it's a mixture of the two. There's yeah, you know, probably, probably some where, where they they're like, oh, we have to include this civilization. What abilities can we give them? And then there's probably other examples of, oh, we have an idea for a really cool ability. What historic, you know, civilization or culture or, or nation state or whatever would it be most appropriate to? You know, like, for example, you know, and we take some of the, the more exotic abilities, like, say, the Venetian ability in, in Civ Five. Did they decide, oh, let's make Venice be a playable civilization first? Or did they think, hey, what would be a cool idea for a playable city-state? And what civilization would that, you know, be most appropriate for? Or in Civ Six, we had, like, the, you know, Maori with the ocean start. You know, did they decide, oh, let's do the Maori first and then, you know, oh, we'll put them on the water because that fits that culture. Or did they think, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had a civilization that starts on the water and then figuring out, you know, what historic culture that would be most appropriate for? I imagine that decision was pretty simultaneous. Yeah, culture starting in the water, probably somebody from Polynesia. Who's interesting in P Polynesian culture? Oh, uh, hey, how about this? You know, I don't know if you guys can hear the hammering outside my window, but nope. good. Time for the Senate, everybody. What better to discuss in the Senate than policy cards? Uh, basically, Zen Gangani on Cephanatics is just asking what policy cards will you usually run? And so the best policy cards are the ones that let you produce military units or use them on the enemy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Ghosh, uh, Oligarchy, uh, Oligarchy Legacy, that kind of stuff uh, would be my pick, of course. But then, you know, OK, sometimes we don't have military cards for every single slot yet. Uh, or something that contributes to fighting. So, okay, begrudgingly, we can throw in so, like a science adjacency card or something, I guess. 
or something that like gives us production, which we can then put to military units. Uh, you know, option. It's technically sort of like military, so it's close enough. Yeah, I'm right there with the uh, the third comment is uh, from Casper GM, uh, which puts God King as number one and urban planning as number two. And uh, yeah, urban planning is like the policy that I slot in right at the start of the game, and it basically stays there until it becomes obsolete and I can't use it anymore. Which is the uh, plus one production in every city policy. Uh, that is pretty good. And the only reason you wouldn't use it is so you could have like better things that are more immediately. Yeah, every now and then it might get slotted out because, you know, it is an economic policy and those are like all the best policies, in my opinion, seem to be the economic ones. So every now and then it does get slotted Oof. out in favor of something like, you know, building settlers or builders faster uh, or yeah. something like that. If uh, especially if I'm focusing it in my capital where yeah. one extra production doesn't make that big of a difference compared to like a 50 percent bonus towards, you know, a, a builder or a settler. Yeah, or you want to get more charges, or you want to do that and get the uh, the worker slash settler bonus, uh, or builder slash settler bonus. There's there are times to not use it, but it is nice. So we like logistics, which is plus one movement in for every unit starting a turn in friendly territory. That is an amazing military tempo thing for domination games. Like that, that's like guaranteed in elite game uh, slot policies for me. Because like when you capture a city, it is, you are then in your own territory again. It's not like a floor mm -hmm. culture where you're culture pressed. Everything that was part of that city's ring is now yours, and you will once again have the bonus at the start of the next turn. So what that amounts to in practice, as you are snowballing in the late game, is that you just have plus one movement, like practically always, and that will stack with the general one and anything you're getting from promotions or otherwise. So you have very fast uh, units, and because there's so many movements stacked up, uh, you can just move into range of the next city and attack it. And that uh, makes a huge difference, especially for siege weapons, because you can actually get them in range of an enemy city and fire before the unit dies. Yeah, although you should be getting that from generals. Uh, like, even at, as soon as you build a siege unit, uh, yeah, generals are already applicable to it. And if you're going to have a siege unit, it should be benefiting from that, because you then also don't need a promotion at all. Uh, to fire or any experience or anything, any policies, just that baseline, that, that siege unit can move one tile and shoot the city before the city shoots back. Although in the late game, those siege units uh, outrange cities, and if they take the plus one range promotion or uh, have the balloons, they can very heavily outrange cities. Yeah, at that just, point, you can practically just park them in your city and hit the enemy cities. Yeah, or like move them along roads, which are now very beneficial, and because of your great general, they can shoot the next city uh, and then, like, they can even still, at the start of the next turn, move along those roads again and shoot the next city after that. So, like, you, you start taking cities every turn or two. Uh, and then that three-turn thing that we were covering earlier with the city revolts just doesn't matter that much. Because, like, you are already taking the next city before the first one can revolt, even though it's only a three-turn timer. <laughs> but that's late-game stuff, because you don't get, like, artillery armies with balloons and all this stuff until late-game. But that is a very nice policy card. There's all the cards that are plus adjacent, plus 100% adjacency bonuses, and there's one for just mm -hmm. about every district. Those are nice, although I'd call them more of a mid-tier thing. Uh, the science one is really good, if you can get it. At the time yeah, you the get it, it's very good. And sometimes the production one, too, depending on your nation. This production yep. is pretty limited in this game, so if you get something uh, fairly large from that, then it's nice for quite some time. Yeah, it only takes a hand, two or three really good campuses for that science one to completely change what you're going for, you know? 
Oh, you doubled oh, your... Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. That did not come out properly. You have those things, and suddenly, yeah, you've doubled your science research in one card. And especially if you do that early, it's in it's early enough in the game, it makes a large difference. Yeah. It rarely doubles. I don't think it can because you are getting some from pop and elsewhere, but it's still mm -hmm. excellent. It's a significant yeah. percentage if you have a lot of adjacency. And that's at a time in the game where you otherwise don't have access to many multipliers on your science at all. So short of just getting more cities with campuses and trying to brute force it, um, that's one of your better options for quite some time for researching more quickly. I mean, yeah, you want to get your uh, you want to get your Eurekas and whatnot as well, but that's yeah, a big big part of going quickly. And then there's the always popular free market rationalism and I think opera houses or grand opera, which is just plus 100% science or gold or culture from the district buildings, uh, plus 50% if the city population is 15 or higher, plus 50% more if there's plus four adjacency bonus. They come late in the game, but they are very powerful. Oh, simultaneum. Or simultaneum does the same thing for faith. I guess we don't have a lot of warmongers here, so I'm not seeing people talking up uh, oligarchic legacy too much. Well, I was just listing the ones that I see that are most effective at their time, and yeah, I think I'm doubling, doubling, here. doubling your le le your um, I guess the the civ version of fids is pretty impressive. But then you've got like drill manuals, which is improved niter and coal, add one additional resource per turn. That's really nice. Well, it's like a temporary thing. Once you have your units produced, then you don't need as high of an income. I think uh, a policy card that is probably very underrated and underutilized is the um, the colonial taxes one. And I think there's another colony one for uh, off-continent uh, cities. Uh, because I think a lot of people fail to remember that in Civ Six, continent is not the same thing as landmass as yeah. it has been in every previous game so a single landmass in civ 6 can have multiple continents on it and it's entirely mm -hmm. possible to have a landlocked uh, civilization in the middle of a continent or even a pangea where you're on the dividing line between you know two continents like you know the real world example would be you know the dividing line between europe and asia uh where if you're if your starting city is is near that border, half of your cities, even though they're all on the same landmass and all very centralized, might be on a different, you know, technical continent. And running, you know, colonial taxes or something like that is potentially benefiting half of your entire empire. The other one you're thinking of is colonial offices, which is plus fifteen percent growth and three loyalty per turn for non for cities that are not on your original capital's continent. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, those those two, I think, are, are probably very underappreciated un and underutilized policy cards because people fail to recognize uh, how continents work in the game. Like one of the first things I always do early in the game is I'll open. I think there's a, a view on the map for continents mm -hmm. uh, where it'll, it'll color code them just to see if um, if that sort of thing is going to be applicable to me. Those loyalty boosts add up, too, because uh, it's not easy to get them right when you're conquering. And that could be the difference of an extra turn or two pretty frequently. If you throw in a governor and you have a couple plus threes, you have a garrison, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you have five turns and then you conquer the next city and you have, you know, 15 turns. And then <laughs> there's the yeah. turn or two later, you, you're making loyalty rather than whatever. But uh, sometimes that can help 
There's the yeah, and uh, going back to that previous topic about the yeah. the loyalty, um, you know, I wonder if if that if that would have been relevant to um, that Reddit user who was uh, asking about the cities flipping all the time, uh, even if th that other so I think it was Macedonia was the civilization they were trying to conquer. Even oh, if Macedonia that was the is they were, oh, yeah, they okay. were yeah. Macedonia. Uh, so even if the civilization you're trying to conquer is on the same landmass, it might still be a different continent. Uh, yep. So. You can potentially run um, what, colonial offices, Canis, right? That's the one for growth and uh, and loyalty, right? Loyalty, yeah. Yeah, so that's something that you could potentially run as well as a wild card to give yourself an extra, you know, buffer uh, before those cities revolt. Lightning warfare plus one fifty percent production for all heavy and light cavalry units. Yeah, there's more than one in there that's specific to like a particular class of units. So if you know your army is going to be comprised of that, or if you're Playing like in this case, you pointed out that one. If you're playing a cavalry heavy Civ, you want that card in there so you can produce them even faster. I mean, imagine Scythia with that. Yeah, though I don't like cavalry eh, ever since it was nerfed as much as it was uh, originally in Civ Six. Also, but the I uh, think... the other production ones can be pretty useful. And cavalry has its place. I'm not saying you shouldn't build it, but I would not comprise a large percentage of my army on cavalry. Patriotic War yeah, plus one hundred percent production to modern atomic and information era support units. I am a uh, usually a big fan in the late game of the New Deal and Five Year Plan uh, policy cards, one or the other or both. Five Year Plan is plus one hundred percent campus and industrial zone adjacency, and right. uh, New Deal is plus four housing, two amenities, and minus eight gold. Wait, are those the adjacency ones or the ones that just give one hundred percent boost? Uh, their outputs. Those are the ones that give 100% boosts to adjacency bonus. Okay, alright. Because there's, the, uh, there's the other ones too. And then the new deal is plus four housing and two amenities in all cities with three specialty districts or more. Which at that point in the game will probably be most of your cities, if not all of them. And then there's one that Phil would love. Defense of the Motherlands. No war weariness for combat in your territory. Plus 100% production for support units. It's okay. Yeah, Phil's probably going to say, eh, I'm never fighting in my territory anyway. That is what often happens. Um, it's not nothing because sometimes you take the city and there's a unit or two or three to clean up after you take the enemy city. Uh, and so you don't get uh, war weariness from that combat. But uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a big deal by that point because you're also capturing amenities and your cities are pretty well established. And what really matters is that your army keeps going. Uh, so you win the game. And also, I think there's the problem that war wariness in Civ 6 is just another one of those mechanics in this game, you know, like culture and tourism that is not particularly well explained. And I don't think a lot of players understand how it works. It's also, I, at least in my experience, even doing uh, dominations on Deity, it, it just is not as impactful as, I, as it was in Civ 4, where it could just cripple you. Like you could have your cities starving out completely uh, if you were too cavalier with your accrual of war wariness but i think because you're not losing units very frequently and the ai doesn't rebuild its armies very much so you're not like slaughtering 50 plus enemy units and doing that many combats that it just doesn't amount to that much of a penalty in the first place in civ 6 uh, relative to earlier titles plus 50 percent production to all air units and carriers for strategic air force you're going to build a nail. Like all these types of production cards are not things you've run permanently, but you put them in and then you build a bunch of stuff uh, for them just as you get the tech relevant to them. 
uh, because a lot of this game is centered on upgrading units rather than producing them, uh, the, it is more attractive for the types of things that you're going to only be able to build after you reach your technology. Uh, but you can always supplement your army by constructing more stuff later, too. And then these cards become relevant again. Like, if you want to build uh, armies for out of your military academies or whatever later on, then, I mean, sure, you, you put these policy cards in for however long you build them, and then you switch them out for something else when you can do so freely. These are all, like, these are all pretty good cards that are situational. Well, and the uh, the Air Force and Carrier one is particularly valuable because you cannot upgrade into planes yeah. or aircraft carriers, so you do that's have to I build them. It. Yeah, and they are fairly expensive. Here's one that's good at all times. After action reports, 50% more experience for all units in combat. Yeah, as long as you're fighting. Because some of the promotions in this game are incredible, so it, it is worth pursuing them. But you do have to be actually taking a fair amount of fights uh, for that car to be better than, say, producing more units and then switching to it later. Yeah. I mean, there's there's quite a few culture and, sci and science victory related ones, but those are just no-brainers, like 15% more production towards science or towards uh, science victory stuff or plus 100% tourism to artifacts and great works, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then there's stuff like, oh, e-commerce, plus two production and five gold to all trade routes. Just so late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how often well, do you a lot ever? Of this stuff is pretty late. Yeah. How often does a game ever last long enough where you actually run that policy and it has any meaningful impact in the game? I have been known to run the Raj one, which is. Uh, let me find it real quick. Yeah, that one's good. That one's available a lot earlier, though. Yeah, it's available at Colonialism, and it's uh, plus two science, gold, faith, and culture from each city-state you're. Uh, suzerain of and plus two gold for city for city state trade routes yeah i like to run charismatic leader a lot which is just like the passive uh envoy generation so you know raj is usually pretty good for me because i have a lot of suzerain city states uh yeah are we done with this topic should we move on yeah we're cruising today Okay, this is a this next one is a little bit of an older topic that we bumped a couple of times, but it has to do with did I open this already? Yeah, I did. It has to do with religious gameplay. Whenever I, it's from Civ MD, and he writes that whenever I'm playing a religion game, I tend to use worth ethic almost exclusively because I have plus four adjacencies in my holy sites. All of my turn 200-ish culture science victories use work ethic. But is there any situation where choral music or Jesuit education would be more beneficial? If you have low adjacency, would choral music be better, be a better choice for cultural victory? And if you'll give me a few seconds, I will pull up the list of religious uh, things and describe them. Preliminary comments go here. Well, I think Jesuit education is pretty dang good. If I remember correctly, that's the ability to purchase uh, science buildings with faith, right? Mm -hmm. And is yes. it also culture buildings? Jesuit education is may purchase campus and theater square buildings with faith. Uh, choral music is shrines provide culture equal to their faith output, intrinsic faith output. And work ethic is plus one production for each follower. Or rather, in Gods and Kings, holy sites provide production equal to their faith adjacency bonus. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's largely going to depend on what kind of religious civilization you're running. If you're if you're playing as a civ with religious bonuses that generates crap tons of faith, uh, where you have a lot of excess faith, then you know Jesuit education becomes all that much better because you can actually afford to spend that faith on those buildings and getting science and culture buildings up earlier is pretty dang valuable. But if you actually need that faith, you know, to build like missionaries and apostles and all that stuff, then, uh, you know, something else is probably better because you're probably never going to be able to afford to spend it on those buildings. I think we can discount choral music right away because culture for culture victories is defensive culture. So that doesn't really help you that much toward actually taking a victory with culture. So... Choral music does not seem to be useful in that regard until much later in the game when you have things that give you tourism based on your total culture, which comes so late that to, like if you're doing a turn 200 victory, that's not going to work. Um, Jesuit education has a better footing for a cultural victory in the sense that you can build theater square districts with faith. Since if you're going religion, you probably have faith. You can buy the the uh, theaters and all that stuff you need for right, which means more great stuff. Which means more great people points earlier, so more great works to slot into them for uh, uh, tourism. Whereas work ethic doesn't really provide that much in the way of direct culture help. But it does give you more production, and more production in Civ Six is king. Yeah, that's universally good. That will always be good, unless none of your holy sites have like any adjacency bonuses, in which case you're just kind of posed in that regard. Yeah, depending on how lucky you've been with your early game, reliquaries might help because you've got triple faith and tu- and tourism from relics. But you would that would only be temporary because you would need. Cristo Redentor, whatever that's called in Civ Six, to prevent loss of the effect of culture, the the loss of um, like when you hit the Enlightenment, religious relics cause or lose half their tourism and faith value. And if I remember correctly, the policies that um, multiply uh, holy site uh, adjacency bonuses also multiply the production from a uh, work ethic. If I remember correctly. So the the early policies that are like plus 100% adjacency bonuses for holy sites will also double the production if you have work ethic, which that, makes it that much more powerful. That would definitely improve things. But again, that is dependent on you and reliant on those holy sites having, you know, decent or good adjacency to begin with. If you're plopping your holy site like down next to two forests and you've just got a plus one, eh, probably go with something else. But if, uh, you know, it's slotted in between like a natural wonder and a mountain, uh, your, uh, then work ethic is going to be very good, especially with that uh, multiplier policy in play. Skimming through the thread, I don't see a lot of very definitive answers here. Everybody seems to think something else is better, which, well, which, tells, me that, which tells me that balance is pretty good for religious stuff right now. Yeah, it's just all dependent on your civilization and the map and how you're playing the game. There's a comment uh, down here from uh, Reddish Riku. Not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, that just says that um, Jesuit education was much better in Civ Five than it is in Civ Six. Uh, it had a similar effect, um, but Civ Five had a lot more pantheons that gave large amounts of faith compared to Civ Six. 
So, you know, you tended to have more faith in Civ Five to spend on those buildings for Jesuit education uh, compared to Civ Six, where, you know, a lot more of your faith goes into building um, religious units and the holy buildings. I think that depends on how you're building the buildings, because you can build the buildings with production if you need to. Yes, you can. Uh, but they are kind of expensive and take a while to build, and that's time that you're not spending building. It's, it's one of the things about religious play in Civ Six and also to an extent Civ Five is that religious play just feeds into more religious play, and it kind of comes at the expense of doing everything else. So things that let you just buy that stuff real quick and not have to spend production on it, so you can spend your production on the other things that you need to get your empire going, do tend to be pretty good. Yeah, warrior monks go. I think we can wrap this one up. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. Uh, to follow the traditional scale, get out. <laughs> no. This has been Polycast episode 407. I'm still Canis Albinus, and we've still got Mackie. Bye. Or bye. Whoops. And the me and team. Hello and goodbye. And Mega Bears fan. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. We got through this one pretty quick, didn't we? Yeah, it was like a 40, yeah, 50 40, minute. Yeah. And covered all of our planned topics. Well, didn't. almost all of them. There were a couple that we didn't have properly preparated. Yeah, well, the ones we cut before starting recording. <laughs> Don't count. <laughs> for one reason or another. <laughs> well, and then there was that topic that got deleted that we still discussed, yeah. too. We managed to talk about it anyway. Hey. That's right. That was, that was like super bonus commitment on our part. This topic no longer exists, but we will cover it anyway. Well, the topic still exists. It's just the post is gone. Stream is done. <laughs> Probably part of the arguing in that thread was people want, like, an exact definition of what a civilization is so they can exclude anybody they don't like. Yeah. Of course. It probably or, devolved... like, put somebody they want in, one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> it probably devolved into a Russia-Ukraine problem. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Since the Russians yeah, would do don't... It. Since the Russians seem to claim that Ukraine doesn't exist as a civilization for some or, reason. Or alternatively, Taiwan, China. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, oh, yeah. Another one that's been controversial in the past is Israel. Yeah. Oof. I mean, despite the fact that we have a 3,000-year-old book that says they're real. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's like what we were talking about it if we got into trying to call the Confederacy a civilization or something like that. Oof. I mean, technically they were, but not in a civ sense. They were. Yeah, I don't know that I like the idea of like putting them alongside the like Mysore or whatever. I, <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's would... pretty funny, but uh, only if you're trolling. I would agree because they're te they they technically did have a government, but they're more like rebellious provinces, and yeah. yeah. Uh, the Confederacy is already in the game. Every time a city flips to a free city, that is the Confederacy. Pretty yes. only from the U.S. <laughs> it would be a little odd if the Confederacy came out of like China or the, <laughs> <laughs> or Scythia just gives rise to the U.S. Confederacy. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Way down south in the land of cotton, <laughs> like out of the Scythian city. <laughs> oh man, the salt! The salt would be amazing. It's like an April Fool's. That it's like the bad taste April Fool's prank. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need any more of those.
Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.